The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. In this monthly radio show and podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey. We'll learn about fruit trees, permaculture, food forests, and so much more. So if you're a gardener and enjoy growing your own food, if you love trees and especially fruit trees... Or if you're just interested in living a more sustainable life, you've come to the right place. I'm Susan Poisner, your host for today. So get ready, roll up your sleeves, and let's dig into today's episode. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact us live this afternoon, right now, send us an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. Now, the more you spend time working with fruit trees, the more you can understand them and their needs. And you start to see some patterns, too. So after years of growing fruit trees, I know what drought stress looks like. If it doesn't rain enough, some of the leaves turn brown at the edges, or they go completely brown. Now, that's your tree's way of saying, Water me, please. But sometimes you'll see that the new growth on the branches of your tree doesn't look so good. The leaves and the branch tips, they go, they go brown and they die. Sometimes you even see a hook at the end of the branch. Now that can be a sign that your apple, pear, or Asian pear tree has fire blight. It is a nasty disease, and it's been spreading around North America in recent years. So my first guest is going to tell us all about fire blight and answer our questions about how to protect our trees from this deadly disease. And in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about something a little more cheerful, persimmons. Persimmons may not be as popular to grow as apples or pears, but I'm not exactly sure why not. If you get the right variety, they're said to be absolutely delicious. And as a bonus, some persimmon trees are actually native to North America, so they're easier to grow here. So our second guest is someone who understands persimmons better than most. It's William Preston of Preston's Persimmon Patch in Maryland. But first, let's talk about the dreaded fire blight. And my guest today is Dr. Carrie Peter. Assistant Professor of Fruit Tree Pathology at Penn State Fruit Research and Extension Center. Now, if any listeners have questions for Dr. Peter, 
please email them in to instudio101 at gmail.com. So, Carrie, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about your work? What is it that you do? So, uh, my role is the tree fruit pathologist for the state of Pennsylvania. So, I take care of managing tree fruit diseases, educating growers, and how to manage diseases of their tree fruit trees. So, tree fruit includes apples, pears, peaches, nectarines, apricots, plums. And one of those diseases that I, I help growers uh, try to manage and not get the better of them is fire blight. So to what extent have you been seeing fire blight in your area in recent years? Well, I started in 2013, and that was a relatively calm year. And then in 2014, I, I call that the year that Mother Nature hazed me. And that was an awful fire blight year. And I actually, that was actually considered an epidemic uh, year. And the entire Northeast was affected by fire blight last year, um, in 2014. And it was also affected in 2015 as well. And the reason was due to the environmental conditions. It was warm and wet during the right times. And then this year, uh, the season for fire blight wasn't as bad, uh, but we dodged a bullet. However, there are our neighbors around us and the north and um, east of us weren't as lucky. Hmm. So it's it's been a challenging few years. Well, what exactly is fire blight and how does it spread? The fire blight is a bacterial disease and it's native to North America. Uh, so that's what makes it especially challenging. It's endemic in North America. And uh, the fire blight, uh, it's the most vulnerable stage of the trees during bloom time. And the bacteria finds its way to the bloom by either uh, insects or splashing rain or water. It can infect the bloom uh, due to openings in the base of the bloom. And when the bacteria enter that those uh, openings at the base of the bloom called nectaries, it gets in the bloom and in the tree, and it can cause disease right there and then in the blossom. So we call that blossom blight. When the disease progresses in the tree at that stage, you can get oozing bacterial ooze, and it can continue to spread throughout the tree. And that's when we can see the characteristic shoot blight, where the young tender shoots of growing trees are especially susceptible. We'll see that shepherd's crook, uh, that characteristic shepherd's crook or candy cane. Now, uh, when we see that the disease progression in the tree, it will kill the plant tissue and it will create a canker and that canker will serve as the overwintering source from year to year as a place for uh, the fire fire blight bacteria to perpetuate Mm -hmm. and so the bacteria will uh, live at that region of dead and living tissue and so that is where the source of bacteria Uh, that is available to cause disease comes from every year. So that's really interesting. So so it sounds like it comes in at bloom time, it sneaks in via the blooms, and it sounds like it works its way through the branches into, I don't know, does it get to the trunk of the tree if you wait long enough? or Depending on how old the tree is, the younger the tree, the more susceptible it is to get infection in the trunk. Mm. And so if it's a brand new tree, you could have possibly tree death in the same year. 
Exactly. Yeah, I've seen that. Unfortunately, here in Toronto, we've had severe problems this year. Apparently, it started last year. I didn't see it. This year, boom, it's been all over. It's been very challenging. Um, So... Okay, you talk about cankers. Now, for those listeners who may or may not know, uh, the cankers, canker can be all sorts of things. It can look like an oozing sore on the tree or a hard patch. Is there something in particular that the canker, a fire blight canker, will look like? A dark it patch? Often, or, as mm-hmm. far as what it, how it's different. Uh, well, oftentimes you'll see at, at the base of a dead area of tissue. So that that's, that's a real telltale sign that... If you see a dead shoot and you trace back that the death of the tip of the shoot, the necrosis, the browning area to the back, you can sort of see it, it looks like a sunken area of the branch. It looks the the bark looks wrinkled. Um, it's it's blackened or brown, and it's um, it, there's a misconception that this is the plant's response. It's actually a good thing, and that's incorrect. The canker is actually, it's dead tissue that is caused by the bacteria. Well, it's interesting. We've had already a lot of emails coming into the studio, and one of them just jumped up, uh, jumped out at me. So it's from Lisa here in Toronto, and she sent some pictures. Unfortunately, I don't know. I'll send them to you later to have a look at. But she says, here are a few pics of Asian pear and sweet cherry trees at San Romano Orchard, which is where she is. Can you help us identify what is trying to attack these trees and the best way to deal with it? I would like to know if it's acceptable to prune each individual suffering leaf. And also, does a fruit tree have the ability to heal itself in any way? Now, I know this particular orchard, and um, in some of the trees you're getting, uh, it starts off, at least with the pear trees, I'm not sure about the cherries, but, you know, you get blackening around the edge of the leaf. So she's just wondering, hey, can I get this early? What, what comment uh, do you have for Lisa? So as far as if, it's, if it is fire blight and the season's dry, you could get ahead of it where you could prune back the branch. You don't necessarily want to just prune off the leaves. You need to prune out the wood. And so the, the wood is what has to be removed because the, if it truly is bacterial, the bacteria is going to be in, in the plant's vascular system, in the veins. And that's basically the major conduit system in the plant that allows transport of water and, and nutrients. So it's important to get it. You want to prune ahead of where you see the decline of the branch. So in the case of Asian pears, um, that's what you would want to do. And in the, in the case of cherries, depending on what it is, again, if it is something either bacterial or fungal, uh, you would want to get, you want to prune beyond that stage of where you see the disease progressing. And during the summer months, the tree can form a callus over where you prune, and that is a way it, quote unquote, heals itself, it heals that area. So it no longer is susceptible to something that could be penetrating into the tree at that open wound because a pruning cut is a wound. So pruning in the summer oftentimes is, is better in some cases for it to manage some diseases because there is recovery time for the tree. Um, but the, the main management strategy for fire blight, though, is actually to wait until uh, winter to be able to prune out the diseased areas because we're ensure that the bacteria has stopped moving through the tree. It stops spreading. And when it stops spreading, that minimizes the chance of you uh, 
the pruner of spreading the disease because there is a high probability of spreading the disease uh, during the summer months just because of the conditions that could be present, environmental conditions that could be present at the time. That's interesting because that's what I was going to ask you. Um, When you read about fire blight, it always says it starts with the blossoms. And so you think, hey, you know, it's July, it's August, uh, nothing to worry about if there's fire blight in there already, in my tree already. Okay, I have a problem, but if the tree, if another tree doesn't have fire blight, I don't have to worry about it getting in because it's it's not blossoming. Is that the case? Not necessarily. Uh, if, if the tree, if you if you don't have blossom blight, that is terrific. However, if your tree continues to grow through the summer months, and oftentimes, um, depending on how much rain occurs. Uh, we could get growth through the whole season. But typically, fruit trees stop growing in July. And But up until that point, if there's succulent shoot growth, meaning nice green tender shoots, those tender shoots are still very susceptible to fire blight and getting the fire blight infection, that characteristic shoot blighter, the shepherd's crook. And insects are very drawn to succulent shoots. Um, they could feed on those succulent shoots, creating a wound. And if there's any bacteria around, that bacteria could then cause disease on that brand new shoot just because of that insect wound. So, so mm-hmm. there's still growers still have to be, or and homeowners still have to be pretty vigilant until about halfway through the summer when the trees stop growing. They start shifting their energies from pushing out new growth to. Uh, if the tree produces fruit, they shift their energies to producing fruit, like halfway through the season. And so when the tree um, branches and shoots are no longer green and succulent, we call, we call it now hardening off, uh, the bacteria can't penetrate those shoots. Mm-hmm. So growers still, and homeowners still have to be pretty vigilant until about um, you know, mid-July or so. So when you say vigilant, it's like don't prune it off in the hot season. Just because, I mean, from what I understand from what you're saying is that the pruning itself does create a wound. Perhaps that bacteria can get in there before the wound heals itself up. So maybe... Could very well, depending on how prevalent the disease could be uh, in that area. And since I know, you know, your region is experiencing a pretty bad fire blight year, you know, if if there's more than like two or three shoots on a young tree it really behooves the person to not do anything because you could make the situation worse by pruning out, you know, the branches, you're creating wounds, there's a chance of spreading the disease because the tree is encouraged to grow now that it's being pruned, and that's just going to cause more succulent shoots, which become more susceptible to fire blight. So it's a vicious cycle. It can be a very vicious cycle during a bad fire blight year. Okay. Well, I got a couple more. Let's go through a couple more emails. First, I'm going to go through, um, this person didn't give his or her name, and I don't know where they are, but let's see what he or she says. Um, Hello, we have an apricot shrub, which did not bear any fruits this year. She says, I think fire blight is a problem. The whole plant leaves were shiny beginning the summer, and I saw bumps on the branches. Should I remove them? Well, from what I understand, uh, fire blight, can it hit an apricot shrub? No, fire blight is not, doesn't go towards stone fruit. That's not one of its hosts. So peaches or, or cherries or apricots, that I'm aware of. It's mostly, it's, uh, it, it, it leans more towards 
the apple family, crab apple, pears, and then the ornamentals in that same family as the apples and pears and crab apples. So, so it could be some, with the, the apricot tree, it could be something else that could be going on. You know what, when she says, I saw bumps on the branches, I think in terms of an insect problem, perhaps. It um, could very well be, or yeah. it could be a fungal problem, could too, be a fungal depending problem on, too. on what's going on. Okay, we have uh, another quick question, so let's see here. Um, I've got, this is from Wendy in central Ontario. So she says, over the past few weeks, we've noticed what we believe to be fire blight on a Chanticleer pear tree we planted four years ago. Today, we pruned the lower affected branches we could comfortably reach, and we'll put them out for garbage collection. There is very little evidence of the blight higher up in the tree. We're hoping to water it every day. And if we do, it may resist this incursion, as otherwise it's very healthy. There are no other, no other fruit trees in the vicinity, she says. So she says, should we take a wait-and-see attitude? We would rather cut it down, which would be sad, than have the expenditure of having it treated every year. Wow, Wendy, that's Peterborough, Ontario. So what would you suggest for Wendy? Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like they've, they've done the right thing as far as pruning everything out. The other uh, factor is the age of the tree. Um, the age of the tree is going to play a big role in how well this tree is going to survive next year. If it's a fairly young tree, I'd say under five years old, and it's had that much fire blight already that they've pruned out, you know, there is a cause of concern that the tree may die. But if it's a very, if it's an older tree, if we're talking about 10 years old, uh, fire blight bacteria moves much slower in older uh, woody tissue. So anything that is going to be two years old or older and very older is going to move very slowly. So there is a chance that the tree could live with the, the disease, and you may see evidence of the disease year to year. As far as what the, how they've managed um you know, manage the disease thus far, your best management tool is removing any cankers from the tree, any of those diseased areas that you see. That is your number one uh, best management tool. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about, like, bigger, older trees versus younger trees, and you say the Mm -hmm. younger trees get hit so hard, and I have seen that firsthand here in Toronto. My question for you is, how is it that we even still have apple and pear trees out there? Fire blight is so devastating. Um, and, you know, I know that there are times and it gets bad. But, you know, was it always like this in history where, you know, for for years, fire blight would be ripping across, you know, continents? Um, did we have these problems in years past? I, I believe that the problems has always been there. What's changed are the varieties that are popular and the tree fruit growing systems. So years ago, we're talking anywhere from 50 to 100 years ago, the way that apples were grown was big standard trees. Uh, These were 80-foot trees. You would need very big ladders to be able to reach all the fruits. Uh, If fire blight would ever attack these trees, you know, there'd be a really small chance of the tree being um, succumbing the disease uh, and as but as years have gone by um, management systems have changed where we now grow much smaller trees uh, because of it's easier to prune it's easier uh, with regards to labor and picking 
you can get much more fruit in an acre than you could uh, with the standard or the semi-dwarf tree system. And consequently, the most popular varieties nowadays are very susceptible to fire blight. So mm. for those who like Gala, uh, Fuji, uh, even Honeycrisp, these are all fire blight susceptible to um, Fuji and Gala, for instance, are very um, fire blight susceptible. Honeycrisp is a little more tolerant, but we're growing susceptible varieties. We're growing varieties that are a magnet for fire blight. Uh, you are also growing small trees that are very susceptible, and it's their first five years of being in the ground. Uh, so, and at the same time, we still have those big trees, those older trees that have been around 20, 30 years, that become the typhoid Mary for fire blight. Mm-hmm, just, and so we have yeah. this bad perpetuation of the disease where those big old trees aren't being pushed out. Um, with the same speed as those new orchard systems are going in. So unfortunately, we just have this bad cycle going on where there's a constant source of the bacteria available, and we have the constant susceptibility always present there, too. And I think that's why we're seeing uh, more of an issue. Um, The other reason is um, our climate's changing, and we're seeing the optimal disease conditions occurring at the most susceptible time, uh, uh, in the most optimal time for the disease, and that's that bloom time. When it's warm and wet during bloom, those are really challenging conditions um, to manage fire blight. It's interesting because when I teach my certificate course in beginner fruit tree care, one of the five modules is on how to choose a fruit tree. And you'd think, well, you go to the garden center and you pick up one, right? Isn't that how you choose it? Uh, And it's so not. You really have to consider the rootstock, the size of the tree, the varieties. It involves a little bit of research. It's not rocket science. But what a difference if you've chosen the right tree. If you know what kind of diseases are flying around at the moment, you can really prevent a lot of these problems very much so and even just in the you know not only um, planting trees that are more tolerant to fire blight more they they're a little more durable they could either the disease doesn't progress as fast uh, for apple trees but even ornamental trees crab apples and ornamental pears just being mindful of those ornamental um, plantings in the home landscape as well is very important Resistance goes a long way, and and grow, and homeowners um, have to realize resistance doesn't mean immunity. So it doesn't mean that the tree will never get it, but it just means that it can handle the disease in such a way that it's not going to kill the tree. Wow. Well, let's have a few more messages from from listeners. So here we've got some short ones. Derek in southeastern Ohio, and he says. Never had it this bad in Southeast Ohio. Some pear trees are devastated. No apple trees bothered, luckily. I find that really interesting um, because um, it's kind of similar here in Toronto. The Asian pears and the pear trees have been hit, hit badly, but the apple trees, not so much. Is that, does that mean it's a certain strain of fire blight? It's, it's probably not the certain strain. It may all be linked to susceptibility of whatever variety it is and bloom time. Mm. Uh, so apples and pears don't all bloom at the same time. So that is going to affect their susceptibility to the disease. And in the case of, of the folks in Ohio, uh, their pears 
well, A, pears are extraordinarily susceptible. They're lightning rods. Mm -hmm. All pears are. Both ornamental and eating pears are very susceptible to fire blight. Uh, And depending on what apple cultivars or apple varieties they have, um, they may have either um, had trees that weren't blooming at the right time for the disease to be able to take over, or the tree that trees that they have are resistant to it. So that may be why, that's most likely why we're seeing differences in susceptibility and differences in disease um, coming out in in certain areas. Interesting. Okay, another uh, quick email here from Alan in Pittsburgh. So we'll talk a little bit uh, later and a few minutes a little bit in more detail, but he says, can doxycycline spray, spray be used preventatively to help prevent fire blight. So why not jump to it? Are there sprays that you can use whether, well, let's start off with organic growers, home growers. Are there sprays that can be used to protect your tree? So your tree is healthy, you want to keep it that way. So during bloom time, what um, homeowners, uh, organic growers could use, they're probably their best bet is copper, organic copper. Um, copper is a biocide, so it's going to kill the bacteria. And you're going to want to apply it when the blooms are open, when it's been warm and or wet, because uh, you want to basically kill the bacteria before it has a chance to get into, into, the, into the nectaries of the flower. In the case of, of what the email had asked about doxycycline, uh, streptomycin is the antibiotic of choice um, that commercial growers use to protect the blossoms. Streptomycin will kill of the bacteria that's in the bloom and but growers use this very judiciously antibiotics should only be used during bloom time uh, because they do not work anytime else outside of bloom time just because of the, the nature of the disease so but it's being very mindful of what the growing of what the conditions are during bloom time as like i said warm and wet around bloom time a protective spray needs to get onto um, the flowers. So in the case of organic, copper is probably your best bet. If you're not worried about um, fruit rusting or fruit damage, because sometimes copper can cause fruit damage. Um, but in the other case, uh, for other folks, uh, a non-organic approach is streptomycin. That is the best surefire uh, spray out there that will protect blossoms from a uh, fire blight. Okay, so we have another question here. Lots of this must be a real problem because we we just have so many questions and comments coming in. Um, so I think you know here in Toronto, you're thinking, oh my goodness, maybe we o- we are the only ones that have it, and it sounds like that's not the case. Um, but we've got a message here from Greg. Now he says uh, he's got three trees that have died in succession this summer. Oh my gosh, there's nothing so heartbreaking. Oh boy. The first, yeah. the first was a mature plum tree that withered and died over the course of a weekend. Oh, my goodness. The dead leaves are still hanging on the tree two months later. Then, he says, two to three weeks after the plum, an adjacent young hybrid pear, it's Warren is the variety, which I've never heard of, but succumbed in a similar fashion, going from green to dead in a matter of a few days. He says, almost a week ago, our other Warren pear has died in the same way. Tips of newly dead tissue are still plump and pliable. And there is not the evidence of twig dieback and inward progression of the disease. So it doesn't sound like fire blight. He says that he would expect with fire blight. 
So he's wondering, is this, could this be root rot? Um, you know, could it have spread from the plum? Um, well, oh, poor guy. It, it, he's it, in it Austin, depends. Texas, by the way. I'm sorry? He's in Austin, Texas, by the way. Okay. Well, depending on how much rain has fallen, um, it could be a root rot disease, especially if it's just going down from one tree to the next. And that and root rot diseases can easily collapse a tree in a very short period of time. And, and a best way of determining if it's root rot is you dig up the tree, look at the roots, and if the roots are very um, pungent and smelly, and if they look brown and thin, uh, that's indicative of a root rot disease. So it really all depends on uh, what the age of the tree is and also, you know, what have been the weather conditions that could have uh, exacerbated a potential root problem. Um, but I personally saw this last year in Pennsylvania when our region um, in a very short period of time got anywhere from 13 to 20 inches of rain and trees were dying of root rot diseases as a result. So uh, the important thing to make notice of is what were the environmental conditions at the time. Hmm. Good advice, Greg. I hope uh, I hope you don't give up. Try again. Yeah. That is just so heartbreaking. Um, oh, for sure. Oh. And and actually, it comes. You know, I have seen pictures. There was a problem here in Canada in Nova Scotia. Um, where there was a serious, I think it was 2014 or maybe 2015, terrible, terrible problems of fire blight, and entire orchards of thousands of trees got hit. Uh, how 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 frequently would you see this kind of thing? That occurred due to um, the, another phase of fire blight called trauma blight, and I believe that occurred due to hurricane or um, it was a um, tropical storm. Uh, one of the tropical storms that made their way up the coast. And what happens with trauma blight is that this bacteria, this fire blight bacteria, will just colonize leaves without causing disease. They'll just hang out there minding their own business until they get an opening. And an opening can be trauma due to high winds, um, tornadoes, uh, hail, any of that, anything that can cause injury. In the case of what happened in Nova Scotia is that you had that horrific storm that came through, whipped the trees around. There was probably a layer of the fire blight bacteria everywhere, and uh, they just didn't get out in time in order to protect their trees because when you have a trauma event, that is the only time post-bloom that you're allowed to apply an antibiotic. And what that will do is that it will protect the vulnerable openings that have occurred due to the trauma and limit the infection of of the fire blight occurring. Uh, So that's what happened in Nova Scotia a few years ago, is that during the the months of the summer, growers have to be, and and folks, um, uh, homeowners too, that have little um, orchards in their yard, they have to be especially concerned about uh, very severe weather conditions because you know, it's a bet. This is a bacteria, and there's lots of different bacteria out there. There's friendly bacteria and bad bacteria that will just colonize surfaces of plants, and and they just will lay there until they receive, uh, you know, the cue to cause disease. And the cause of disease is, or the cue would be, uh, a, a damage opening an opening into the plant tissue. So that's what happened. Trauma blight. No, it's just terrible. And, and it- that only happens when we have. Really, if there's a hailstorm 
when you have that massive dieback or massive die-off is, is due to that. Yeah, it's it's so important that uh, whether you're, you know, a homeowner with one tree or two trees, that you really know how to care for the tree and actually watch it meticulously and know what to look for. Because, you know, one neighborhood tree gets sick and they all get sick. So, yeah. um, and it's just, we all have a responsibility to understand what all these diseases look like. There's not that many, um, but just so that we can protect our trees and neighborhood trees. Um, I'm just going to read through a couple of other quick emails. Uh, Larry in Mississippi. So we're, we're getting these from all over the country. It's <laughs> Miss- wonderful. Well, it's wonderful to hear from people. It's so sad to hear that it is so widespread. But That's he, for sure. It's just so sad. Okay, he says in Mississippi, moderate uh, fire blight. After four years, almost blight-free. He says, I expect next year to be bad. I guess because, you know, it came, maybe he's a pessimist or maybe he just uh, sees that there's, you know, that's kind of what happened here in Toronto. There was some fire blight uh, last year and then boom, this year, boy, all over the place. Um, I've also got from Sarah in central Ohio, fire blight took hold bad here in my older apple trees. One will need to be completely removed, hoping to save the others. And we've got, let's see. A Debbie in Western North Carolina. This year was particularly bad here in our little part of Western North Carolina. We lost a lot of trees. Uh, let's see, one more. Dan from Michigan. I've heard from my friends in New York and Vermont areas that it's a hotbed of fire blight this year because of weather conditions. He says, my trees are all pretty young and I have not dealt with it yet personally here and that's in Michigan. Oh, so I hope he can keep those little trees protected. For sure. Yeah. So um, you had also, you talked about using copper spray. What about Bordeaux? Is that equally good, different, same? Uh, Bordeaux, that is that is uh, a good mixture. Uh, Bordeaux is copper sulfate and lime. And what it does is, um, is actually the lime will... It, that buffers the copper sulfate, so it makes it less, it helps the copper stick around a little longer, and also it tempers the phytotoxic effects of the copper, so the damage that the copper could do on leaf tissue or fruit tissue. Uh, Bordeaux is, that is a, a good uh, method of managing fire blight. The one thing is, if, if people don't care about what their fruit look like, and they don't mind russeting that netting appearance on apples, then that is, you know, that is a way of managing fire blight uh, at bloom time as well. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if we know that fire blight is all over this year and next year, it might be worth the sacrifice. You know, you've got a healthy tree. Okay, the fruit may not look perfect, Mm -hmm. but you know your tree is protected. Is it possible that in two or three years' time, fire blight will no longer be a problem in these places that we're hearing from, whether it's Toronto or Michigan, or all over the country? Like, you know, does it get to be a big problem briefly for a year or two, and then it passes? It, it all it all boils down to what are the weather conditions uh, each season. Uh, like, for instance, in Pennsylvania, the reason why uh, it wasn't much of a problem for us this year is that our bloom was at the end of April, and then we had three weeks of cold weather, weather that was where the average temperature was below 60 degrees. And those were not optimal conditions for the fire blight bacteria to replicate and take hold. 
That's how Pennsylvania dodged a bullet. Mm. And unfortunately, other regions in the area, their bloom came later, where it was much warmer, it was much more humid, it was much wetter, and that's why. So it all depends on when the bloom time is and also the environmental conditions. The other thing mm -hmm. that will um, basically perpetuate the disease are, is leaving those cankers around. If people become mindful of paying attention to when they're pruning their trees during the winter and removing those dead areas, that is, goes a long way in perpetuating the disease for years to come. Removing those cankers, burning the tissue, just getting rid of that bacteria the best they can. That sounds like really good advice. But again, being aware when you are actually pruning, what time of year you are pruning those trees? So. Uh, you'd want to be pruning in the winter months because that's you can see the tree when there's no leaves on the tree. So you'll be able to see those darkened areas, those sunken areas that may that, that look very different from healthy bark tissue. Yeah. So that's the best time to prune. So, um, you know, January, February, March. Um, I've got a few. I'm afraid I might not get to all the emails, but one really interesting one here. It's from Deb in Southeast Ohio. She says, this year was bad due to the cicadas. She says she oh. thinks they spread the bacteria as they traveled from tree to tree, cutting slits in the bark. She says she did a lot of pruning as soon as the cicadas were done and the pear and the apple trees recovered once the weather got drier. Tell me about that. Cicadas, huh? So cicadas are an insect that have piercing, sucky mouth parts. And those are the type of insects that can really wreak havoc in an orchard and help spread the fire blight, mainly because of the type of wounds they create in the tree and in the plant tissue. Uh, and so in that case, if fire blight was already there, there was probably this layer of bacteria that was just hanging around. And when the cicada came in or the cicadas came in and created those wounds, the bacteria was able to get into the tree much easier. So that, that's actually a really good point to bring up because we don't, I think about little tiny insects like plant hoppers or aphids, but cicadas can really, they can do a lot of damage in more ways than one. In this case, it was an example of, of being a, a vector for the fire blight in an essence. Wow. Um, okay, I've just, oh, one more question and we'll answer it quickly and then I'm afraid we have to wrap up. And it's again from Greg, who wrote us previously. Uh, let's see, I don't know if I remember where he's from. But anyways, he says, can you discuss the effectiveness of biological fungicides like Bacillus subtilis and Bacillus pumilis? Excuse my pronunciation. How are those at addressing fire blight? So, it's, so I've, I've evaluated those products over the last few years. And if the disease pressure is low meaning that the, the disease conditions aren't very extreme in the sense of very warm, very wet, uh, and for a long period of time, it seems that those products can help. Um, however, they do not match in efficacy to the more conventional products. Uh, and the one thing is that um, those products have to be applied often during the bloom time because they can get washed off. They don't stay around very long. Uh, but when it comes time for managing fire blight, if that is your only, if that's your only choice, it is better than nothing um, to put something out there to protect. 
Um, but unfortunately, the biologicals, um, I'm researching it. There's folks in Michigan that's looking, that are looking at the biologicals. How can we optimize them to be more, um, more robust in our conditions east of the Mississippi River? Um, because our weather conditions of heat and humidity and moisture and rain and dew and fog <laughs> during the season those all impact the efficacy of these biologicals. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing to keep in mind when, when folks are wondering why why does it work here, why doesn't it work here like it works out west? Well, the west doesn't have humidity, and that is why certain products can work much better out west. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, 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 um, you know the, the mission continues to try to find something that's comparable um, to conventional, but... Uh, but like I said, we have not seen anything that, that matches it, but it's better than nothing if you don't have other options. That sounds like really good advice. Well, Dr. Carrie Peter, it has been so interesting to talk to you. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Goodbye for now. Okay. Take care. Well, listeners, if you listen, if you missed the beginning of this interview, we have talked about so much. And if you missed the beginning and you'd like to listen to it again, you can download the podcast at orchardpeople.com slash network. That's once we complete the show, I will put it up. And while you're there, you can sign up for our iTunes podcast feed so you can catch up on previous episodes and so you don't miss future ones. But don't go anywhere yet, because coming up after a few words from our sponsors, We're going to talk about persimmons. It's a fruit that's easy to grow, but does it actually taste good? We're going to find out by speaking to persimmon growing expert William Preston of Preston's Persimmon Patch in Calvert County, Maryland. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. Dreamt a perfect dream and it all fell down. We hey Sally, your garden is looking great today. Thanks, Gary. Your lawn is looking a little bit dry. Ah, that's okay. It's all going to change. Soon I'm going to plant a fruit tree in my yard. I'm thinking an apple tree or maybe peach. That sounds great, but do you know what you're doing? Well, fruit trees are easy. You just plant them, water them, and wait for the harvest, right? Actually, that's not quite the case. What? Organic orchardists spend a lot of time protecting their fruit trees from pest and disease problems. Really? And in order to thrive, fruit trees need to be pruned every year. Hmm, I didn't know that. I'll tell you what. Before you buy your tree, why don't you go to orchardpeople.com? You'll learn lots about growing fruit from the blog, and there's a fantastic monthly newsletter with seasonal tips and reminders. Maybe I should check that out. Yeah, then if you really want to move ahead, you can sign up for orchardpeople.com's beginner fruit tree care course. So maybe I should hold off on buying my tree today? You got it. The more you know, the better your tree will grow. Sign up for a free membership to orchardpeople.com today. This broadcast has been sponsored by Tree Campus USA, a program of the Arbor Day Foundation. Tree Campus USA honors college campuses and their leaders for promoting healthy urban forest management. 
and also for getting the community involved in environmental stewardship. Last year, 254 colleges and universities in the United States were recognized with Tree Campus USA distinction. All of them had to meet five standards, including having a tree advisory committee, having a tree care plan in place, spending some of the campus budget on tree planting and education, organizing an Arbor Day celebration, and engaging students in tree-related projects and initiatives. Are you interested in finding out how you can get involved? Visit www.arborday.org slash treecampususa. Tree Campus USA is an Arbor Day Foundation program sponsored in partnership with Toyota. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live, email her right now in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and lots more. Thanks for tuning in. In the first part of the show, we talked about fire blight and how to fight that nasty disease that hits apple and pear trees. I guess that one of the problems we face when we plant popular trees like apples or pears is that there's a good chance others in your community may also be growing those trees. And if they're neglecting their trees, not pruning properly and not protecting them from pests and disease, well then their trees may get sick and the infection will come over to your lovely tree. But what if you grow a type of fruit that few others grow. Maybe, just maybe, your trees will be a bit more protected. If you want to give it a try, why not plant persimmons? Now, persimmons are a widely misunderstood fruit that can be delicious and nutritious. They are high in minerals like calcium, magnesium, iron, and beta-carotene. Well, that's what we're going to talk about next on the show. So, coming up, my next guest is going to be Bill Preston of Preston's Persimmon Patch in Calvert County, Maryland. And Bill has been growing persimmons for a very long time. So, he's also the author of a book called When Persimmon Was King. Bill, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well. So, so tell me, how long have you been growing persimmons for? I guess probably uh, uh, 30, 30 or more years. And why did you start? Because I was interested in uh, a whole group of varieties that were being um, destroyed in California in an experiment station plot. They sent uh, samples of fruits over to uh, Glendale, where I was working, and I managed to 
see and taste a lot of those fruits. They were so fascinating. I followed it up from there. And had you heard about persimmons before that? Well, I, I'm a native to the area here, and we have native persimmon trees, which are fine. But the, the, uh, the uh, oriental persimmons are so much larger and w- worth fooling with, yeah. <laughs> so you started fooling with them. Now, now, what was your background? Did you grow apple trees and pear trees before? Uh, a little bit, yes. Uh-huh. I'm a trained horticulturist, yeah. So, so what was the draw? Was it curiosity? And how did it go at first? Did you find it was easy to grow these trees? Well, uh, a friend of mine and I, uh, Eugene Griffith and I, uh, explored several states where persimmons had been known to be grown. Oriental persimmons had been known to be grown. And uh, we checked the Blue Ridge Mountains and, and uh, Pennsylvania areas uh, all up and down the coast and found uh, quite a few individual plants, trees, that had been grafted that were oriental persimmons, and that's kind of how we follow them through, yeah. Now, I hate to say this to you, but persimmons don't always have a good name. Some people say they don't taste very good. <laughs> that's true, and it is true. The uh, uh, A lot of the oriental varieties and almost uh, essentially all of the native persimmons are um, what we call astringent so they'll dry your mouth out when you try to eat them and so uh, people when they experience that effect they never forget it so have you managed to change anybody's minds like have you with the work here you're growing this fruit i mean do you have anybody to sell it to does anybody want to buy it from you yes uh they'll buy uh, a persimmon that has no astringency. And uh, I have uh, come across a number of varieties that have no astringency. I ran taste panels on them and selected one that I thought was probably the best of the group, and that's the one that I used to establish my orchard. But these, these trees um, have no astringency, and they also uh, will set fruit without being pollinated. And so you have seedless fruit, and that's what I am what I aimed for. Oh, that's amazing. Now, I know people are going to ask, and I see an email's come in as well. We'll see what that is. But what are these varieties? Should we be out there looking for those varieties? Well, the variety that I use is Guang Yang. It's not well known but it was a selection that was brought over from a collection in Korea. Still, it was a, it was a Chinese variety, and uh, about 60 or 70 other varieties were brought over as uh, grafting wood and tested, test-grown here in uh, Maryland, on the eastern shore of Maryland, and that's where I ran across quite a few varieties.
Hmm. But they're, uh, a lot of them are astringent types, and a lot of them are very seedy if they get pollinated, yes, by a, by a male tree. Oh. Keep in mind that, that uh, the trees that produce fruit are female trees. But you said you have a variety that doesn't need pollination? Is that like immaculate conception? How does that work? <laughs> they, they just form their fruits without uh, any uh, pollination required. And uh, so uh, it makes it rather easy for me not to worry about the, uh, the bees that are necessary for a lot of other crops. Well, I you, we have to talk about this at some point. Maybe you can teach me how that happens. But uh, in the meantime, we have a question from Alan in Pittsburgh who writes. He says, I grow persimmons in Pittsburgh. And over the years, one of the most challenging problems has been khaki sudden death syndrome. Have you had to deal with this problem? And if so, what have you done to prevent it? What kind of syndrome? He K-A-K-I, khaki sudden death syndrome. Oh, I see. I've never had that problem. So I, I don't, uh, I haven't run into it. There is one, one situation that he may have run into and called it khaki sudden death, but uh, there is uh, a possibility that there might be incompatibility between the um, native um, diasporas Virginiana as an understock and the diasporas khaki, the uh, oriental um, stock, um, cyan. And so that could happen. And it might happen uh, right away or it might happen much uh, later that after the trees have been established for a while. And I'm dealing with that, yes. Okay, so there are, you know, I have this this idea that because you're growing persimmons, you don't have to face the serious problems like rust and fire blight and and other problems that other orchardists face, but it sounds like persimmons do have their challenges. They do have their challenges. <laughs> the uh, the uh, uh, European wasp comes in about the time the fruits are beginning to ripen. It's a, an extra-large wasp, and it'll cut the, the uh, ripe fruit open and start feeding on the sweet uh, tissue inside. And uh, that can be quite a problem if you have quite a few of those bees around. Hmm. And other than that, now you told me, and I don't. hopefully it wasn't in secret, you said you're 87 years old. Is that's it, true. <laughs> that's wonderful. So how is it to care for your trees? Is there a lot of work involved? There is quite a bit of work. I have to uh, keep the uh, uh, growth of, of grass and vines and so forth that grow under the trees. I have to keep them mowed so that uh, the trees are not uh, uh, filled with all sorts of vines and and underbrush, but I, I I do that. That's a pretty hard job, but it has to be done. And uh, for pruning, the trees kind of self prune themselves, and I have to remove 
uh, the dead branches that eventually show up there, usually twigs or, or sometimes a little larger, but they, they come off fairly easily, and that, that gets them out of the way anyway. Wow. Now, what's it like for you? Because I understand you sell your persimmons at the farmer's market. What kind and of pers- And where else? And also, I sell, I sell, sell both retail at the market, and also I sell re- uh, wholesale oh. for uh, other uh, vendors who like to offer them to their to their clients. So what is the response of clients who walk by? Like, do they, when you're at the farmer's market, for instance, do they, are they curious? Do they already know this fruit? Some do, but a lot of them don't. So what I do is offer uh, slices of a uh, ripe but firm fruit uh, on a plate and let people try them. And you get one or two folks beginning to try them, and you get two or three more people becoming curious about what happens, and you end up with a whole crowd of people wanting all those samples. You you can hardly supply the samples fast enough. Wow. And then then when they buy them, they like, or when they taste them, they like them, and they want to buy anywhere from five to ten fruits or something like that. Um, Well, what would you would you recommend that that people uh, try? Um, I know a lot of people like planting native trees. Is it worthwhile planting native persimmons, or are they just too seedy and astringent for most of us to enjoy? They they will definitely be astringent. I like the uh, fruits, but you do have to wait until they're uh, wrinkled and soft, because uh, otherwise. Uh, they're too astringent to uh, even eat, but the flavor is good once they're once they have no astringency. And incidentally, you can remove the astringency by placing fully ripe native or uh, astringent uh, khaki fruits and put them in a plastic bag, close them up tight. But before you do that, put in an apple or two. And the carbon dioxide and the uh, the uh, ethylene from the apples will ripen the fruits and re- remove the astringency in them. That sounds good. That's good advice. Bill, I want to thank you. This conversation was far too short, and uh, I think that one day I need to do a whole show on persimmons because I see there's been a lot of interesting research um, and I know you worked on a research study on persimmons uh, a while back. And also, of course, there's your book. What, what is your book about? My book is about uh, the uh, travels of uh, Palamon Dorset, who went to China in the 1926, and uh explored the persimmon growing areas around Beijing at that time. And uh, uh, I have a lot of his photographs. I was given a lot of his photographs when his uh, office was cleared out at Beltsville. And I uh, put the material in order, figured out who had 
taken the pictures and so forth, and then uh, worked with the uh, National Agricultural Library to work out details, and I was able to put in a whole story. Mainly it's a picture book, but it's a whole story of the activities from planting and grafting and uh, marketing and so forth that uh, the Chinese did, and it was a lot of work hmm. for them, but they they were they were up to it, and they did it because they loved that fruit. Wow. Well, Bill, the show is almost over, but I am so grateful to have you with us today on the show. So thanks so much for coming. Thank you very much for being interested. It's not just me. We're all very interested. Okay, goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for the show today. It was so nice to speak to my special guest, Dr. Carrie Peter, Assistant Professor of Fruit Tree Pathology at Penn State Fruit Research and Extension Center, and Bill Preston of Preston's Persimmon Patch in Calvert County, Maryland. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to listen again, you can listen online or download the podcast from iTunes. All you have to do is go to orchardpeople.com network to access this or previous episodes covering all aspects of fruit trees, food forests, and permaculture gardens. Now, while you're on the site, don't forget to sign up for my monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. I'll remind you about upcoming podcasts and radio shows, and you'll get access to lots of free content, including articles, interviews, ebooks, resource lists, and more. Tune into the show again next month, and we will have more great guests. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com, and I look forward to seeing you again next month. If you want to learn more about the Community Orchard Network, I've created a page on my website where you can find out lots more information and learn how to sign up for our newsletter. Just visit www.orchardpeople.com network. And you can read our frequently asked questions and check out the free webinars and podcasts that we've recorded. Tune in next month and you'll meet some more great guests and you'll learn more about fruit trees, permaculture, and forest gardens. Our show goes out on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Susan Poisner. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner right here on Reality Radio 101.